Welcome to Messy Closet, the spiritual journey of Generation X. I'm Roseanne Carlo, and here we explore the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and the lessons my friends and I may or may not have learned. Thanks for tuning in to this new episode. Yesterday's episode came to you from the Podbean app. Today, I am crossing my fingers it gets to you on Soundtrap. And of course, once again, thank you all for tuning in. And I'm talking today about the Avon murders. That's what we called them from 1993 in Bronxville, New York, when heiress Ann Scripps was murdered, bludgeoned to death in her sleep by her estranged second husband. So let's get into this murder. Ann Scripps was the heiress to the E.W. Scripps Company. Her great-great-grandfather was James E. Scripps, the founder of the Detroit News. And what happened to her in 1993 was she was bludgeoned to death by her estranged ex-husband, Scott Douglas, as she slept in her home on Avon Road in Bronxville, New York. She was 47 years old at the time, and the attack happened on New Year's Eve 1993, and she died a week later on January 6th, 1994. She had two spouses, so Scott Douglas was her second. She married him in 1988 until her death in 94, and Anthony Morell, her first husband from 1969 to 1988. She had two children with her first husband, Alexandra and Anne, and a third daughter, Victoria, with uh, Scott Douglas. Her father was James E. Scripps III, a former merchant mariner, and her mother, Anne Scripps. She has a brother, James IV, and a sister, Mary. So, in 1969, when she was 23, she married Anthony Morell, and he was a stockbroker from Rye, New York. And if you don't know Rye, New York, it is where Playland is located. And if you don't know Playland, if you know the movie Big with Tom Hanks, that is the place where the Zoltar scene took place. Uh, It's been around for over 100 years, and it is just a gem of Westchester. They have the Dragon Coaster, one of the oldest roller coasters in New York State besides the cyclone at Coney Island. They're both made of wood and they also have one of those very old derby rides that goes around in circles with the racehorses. But anyway, I digress. Let's get back to Bronxville, New York. Bronxville is an incredibly beautiful town with beautiful businesses, amazing restaurants. It's quiet and it's very Wealthy, So it comes as no surprise that an heiress and her stockbroker husband would have lived here. So they stayed married until 1988. And then in a very strange twist of fate in exactly that year, Anne met Scott at a party. He described himself as an out-of-work, self-employed house painter, so she hired him to paint her house, and then the two of them got married that following October. And they had a daughter named Victoria that they called Tori. Now, this man, Douglas, he didn't have a good relationship with her daughter, Alexandra, and she thought of him as like not bright enough and articulate enough for her mother. So she moved out of the house 
She saw that he drank heavily and became erratic and violent, and he openly hit her in public on at least one occasion. So both of her daughters advised their mother to file for a divorce and get him out, eviction, and they just wanted him gone. So if in 1991, Scripps and Tori moved in with her older daughter, Alexandra. She changed her will. She moved out away from him. She was like in fear that that her husband would take their daughter, Tori, and flee. And during the holidays, she actually discovered that he had removed her daughter's birth certificate and personal records from the house. And they began documenting and keeping records and and her two older daughters of all of these things. She wanted an eviction out of her home and went to the court on December 6th, 1993, but the judge denied her this eviction. So Ann Scripps told some friends that she started sleeping with a hammer under her bed because his method of abuse was to wake her up in the middle of the night and scare her and berate her. And it was probably much worse than that if she slept with a hammer under her bed because I was in a situation like that where I would get woken up and it was horrible. It's probably one of the scariest things that could happen. So December 31st, he took the hammer from under her bed and bludgeoned her to death while she slept. So no one discovered this until the morning and her daughter Anne called the police on January 1st at oh, 3.30 a.m. She was unable to get in contact with her mother or Douglas and they knew something was up. So her daughter was, was right on it. Um, unfortunately, they didn't find her on time. She was unconscious. Her sheets were soaked in blood. And the saddest thing was her little puppy, her terrier, was next to her trying to comfort her. And the saddest part of this all is that her three-year-old daughter, Tori, who was also Scott Douglas's daughter, witnessed the entire crime. And her skull was irreparably broken. Now, the daughter, who was only three years old, and kids tell the truth at that age, kept saying, daddy gave mommy boo-boos, daddy gave mommy many boo-boos, why is mommy wearing war paint? Why would a three-year-old know that? So, Douglas kills his wife, bludgeons her to death in front of their daughter, he takes off. He takes off in his BMW, it's a 1982 BMW, and they found it at the Tappan Zee Bridge, which is now the, that was that bridge was taken down, it was torn down, and we've got the Mario Cuomo Bridge, which is put up in its place. Much safer bridge. The Tappan Zee was just a mess, a dangerous bridge. But anyway, it's actually a very popular place for people to jump. They find the car. They find the bloody hammer inside. They drag the Hudson River and they thought maybe he was still alive. So Scripps is in the hospital and Scripps and her first husband who was in terminal stages of cirrhosis of the liver and had been hospitalized in Philadelphia, left his hospital bed to be by her side. And a week after the attack and two days after the authorities stopped dragging the Hudson for Douglas's body, she was taken off life support because she never regained consciousness. 
and she gave a bunch of organs. She gave um, her liver to her ex-husband, who is still living through it. And, you know, her daughters just thought that would be their mother's wishes. And they said Anne left this world the way she lived it, loving and giving. Of course, we know this cannot possibly be the end of the story because of how tragic this was. So this happened in 1993, but on September 25th, 2009, according to the Huffington Post, Anne's daughter, Anne, jumped to her death from the Tappan Zee Bridge and they found a note and they believe that she got out of her car and jumped on the evening of September 24th and sadly three days later her body was found in the Hudson River and the contents of the the note were released in an interview by ABC's 2020 in 2010 and so many family and friends say that she never got over her mother's murder and she had been hospitalized so many times for severe depression and she had a son named Michael at the time of her death. New York Post goes deeper into this and it quotes, a family tragedy has apparently made an eerie full circle in the waters of the Hudson River as authorities work to confirm that the daughter of newspaper heiress left to her death after parking her own BMW on this busy bridge, the Tappan Zee Bridge. Literally, she ended her life in the same tragic way as her stepfather who killed her mother. Now, love her or hate her, love Fox News or hate Fox News, Judge Janine Pirro was actually the Westchester County District Attorney at the time, and she was taking care of the case, handling the case, and she said, when you commit a violent crime, people think it's over once the person is prosecuted, or dies, or the newspapers are done with the story. The truth is, the effect of that crime lives on in the victim's family and friends, and that is the truth. So she wasn't always how she is on Fox News. Actually, she's to be um, really put together and handle everything really well, and she did with this case. This particular case was actually the start of her career, and This was like literally her first day on the job. And she said, little did I think that on my first day as district attorney, I would be facing a case that would garner national attention because of the uniqueness or so it seemed at the time of domestic violence occurring in the upper economic strata of families. So, I mean, the man like beat his wife into a coma and remember, Until 1993, that was not even considered a crime, neither was sexually assaulting your wife. So there was not a lot of protection. I deal with Janine Pirro being the Westchester County Attorney General at the time was the fact that she was a woman speaking out about another woman who was denied protection and denied protective orders. And the last time she went in for a protective order, the judge was actually on vacation. So the family court did absolutely nothing. And Janine Pirro was quoted as saying, when the court realizes that a woman who came for help is murdered with a hammer within a week's time, they have to look at themselves and say, why did we miss this one? 
can tell you from experience that protective orders are not easy to get and it takes a very long time to see a judge unless something happens immediately that day and someone's in jail. So, yeah, it was just one of these things. Now, the two sisters tried to get custody of Victoria, but they lost it and they like there was like this whole lawsuit that stated like they failed to protect their mother and it was just insane so Anne the other Anne was divorced like or separated or something and the son lived with his father and apparently then the father died in like 2005 and it was just all of this incredible sadness and Janine Pirro also said, I remember going to the house in Bronxville. I remember it was freezing. There was snow on the ground, but it was sunny and it was quiet. A murder had occurred, yet the sun was coming through the windows. I couldn't help but think of the horror, the screams, the blood. I remember thinking the devil has been at this house. This is not the end of the story. Let's talk Victoria Tory. So in 2005, her adoption was unsuccessful by her sister, but she was adopted by her mother's sister. So Anne Scripps' sister, Mary Gibbs, and her husband, Robert Carmody of Charlotte, North Carolina, and they hoped that Tory would like benefit from starting a new life. So the New York Times reported in 1994 that a Scripps family lawyer said the collective wisdom was that it would be in the best interest if Victoria was removed from the immediate environment of the tragedy and be brought up in a rural setting to begin a new life. Tori is now having these issues and August 31st, 2011, Victoria Scripps Carmody, when she was 21 years old, She was accused of having 193 bags of heroin in her BMW, and she was pulled over in Brattleboro, Vermont, and that was August 10th, and asked to, like, she was with the drug task force. So she was actually returning with two men from Holyoke, Massachusetts, where she said that she and these men had gone to buy heroin. So the state trooper that stopped Tori's car noticed she had track marks on her arm and she basically said that she had a six bag a day heroin habit. Now, I'll be honest, I have an absolute heart for her because of the horrific things that she's been through and witnessing something like that at three years old does not make your life easy. So... The Burlingham Free Press at this time said in the past two and a half years, Scripps Carmody has had four drug arrests along with two pending burglary charges and prior cases involved possession of Oxycontin. She agreed to enroll in like some court diversionary tactics to get like, you know, rid of the drugs. Um, She pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor drug charge. She paid a fine and then an accessory to robbery that was dismissed but the drug thing was not currently at the time she was taken to chittenden regional correctional facility in south burlington she remained there because her parents decided not to post the ten thousand dollar bail they wanted her to dry out while she was in jail so The Free Press, the Burlington Free Press, quoted her father as saying, 
It's about a 15 to 30 day withdrawal with the kind of stuff she's been using before she's clean, so to speak. So partly we're thinking that it's best accomplished where she's at. I think her attorney has told her that we are keeping her there to dry her out. And her mother stated, we're supporting her every way we can. We love her and we'll never stop loving her and we'll never stop trying to help her. So the day she was arrested, her parents thought that she was at a private hospital. They brought her to a week earlier and they don't know how she got out of the hospital or how she got a hold of a car, but she did and it resulted in this arrest. Also told the Burlington Free Press that her childhood was idyllic, which maybe, maybe not. I mean, she had trauma, but I think that they did their best. They gave her overnight birthday parties, you know, brownies and a lot of friends, but the doctors and counselors and everything basically started saying, warning them, Tori could start to ask questions about her past when she reaches her teenage years. And it was during those two years that these events described by Mary Scripps had a profound effect on Tori's ability to cope with the past. Because of course, now you're like hormonal, you probably have suppressed memories of what's happening, you're probably having nightmares and not telling anyone. So the issue was though, there was like this airing of a Lifetime movie network or re-airing, I should say, of a Lifetime Network movie made in 1997, and it basically portrayed the story of her mother's murder with her father, and even though a lot of the story was fictionalized, being based on a true story, Tori's classmates, like, tormented her, and they teased her about her mother being killed and being adopted, and, of course... Her school performance started to decline. She stopped doing homework and basically it was really, really hard for her now adoptive parents to find schools, even a high school where she would thrive and she was never happy. She attended four different high schools and one was a residential treatment center in Utah. She was actually scheduled to receive her inheritance because remember, she's an heiress. She's the great, great, great granddaughter of Scripps. And um, she was supposed to get this on her 18th birthday. And they actually tried to delay it, her parents, because they knew that Tori would not be able to handle a large amount of money at one time. But of course, she's 18, she's an adult. It was completely unsuccessful. So it wasn't a large amount of money. Back in the 90s, this would have been a large amount. It was a $1.3 million estate. But... Um, you know, when you've got that and you've got issues, it's party time. So her second troubling event was the suicide of her two older half-sisters. So half-sister Anne took her life that echoed her stepfather's death. And it doesn't say anything about the other sister, Alexandra, and her death. Um... But yeah, her, it's just so sad because like all of these people took their lives because of a divorce, an abusive alcoholic man who was self-employed but also out of work that their mom married the same year as her divorce and, you know, had a baby and just thought, okay, this is going to be great. My life is going to start over again. And it ended up that this man destroyed her life. He destroyed 
his child along with his two stepchildren's lives and a lot of people in the aftermath have taken their own lives because they cannot deal with the tragedy. And like I said, this was a huge, huge shock to happen in Bronxville, New York. This is a place where you have to park front forward facing the meter. If you park with your rear wheels to the curb, you're getting a ticket. If you're parked over two hours in a spot, you're getting a ticket. You can walk everywhere. It's a 25-minute ride in on the Metro North into Grand Central Station. So it's basically like a little walking town with beautiful homes and beautiful even apartments and apartment buildings. Um, I love it. Like I said, but in 1993, in the 90s, were tumultuous. This was just like another big shock for us that, you know, there was a, a murder in Bronxville. I'm from Mount Vernon. There were murders all the time. If you look at News Channel 12, they're always in Mount Vernon for something. It's it's a pretty insane town, city, whatever. Yeah, it's a city. It's not a town. Bronxville's the town. And for this to have happened in a place where we would we would go to the movies in Bronxville over Yonkers because it was, quote, safer. And I'm not saying that Bronxville is not a safe town. It absolutely is. It's just the fact that we never thought a very vicious murder would take place there. But this is what happens when a man who's self-employed, out of work, and probably a gold digger, meets a wealthy heiress and figures I could take advantage of her in this way, this way, and this way. And she wanted out. She wanted a divorce. She went to court. She did everything the right way and had Westchester family court at that time listened. Three people would still be alive. And this young girl would not be in and out of rehab, Tori. So, you know, it's just amazing because like I said, up until 1993, domestic abuse, sexual assault of your spouse, your wife, it was not a problem under the law. It could be done. You could be abused and if you tried to leave and get legal help, you weren't going to. My thought is because this was you know, right around that time and the laws were changing, she wasn't going to get any help. And she didn't. And it just goes to show you that what simple changes in laws can do to protect women from domestic violence, how this truly can save lives. So with that, this is one of the darker stories from Westchester County, and there are so many. So stay tuned for more True Crime Tuesday, and thank you for listening to this episode of Messy Closet. And don't forget to keep art and keep love alive.